If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to be turning to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we'll be there in just a moment, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we are 25 days away from the World Games in Birmingham. The first World Games took place back in 1981, and this is the first time that it's been back in the United States since that time in 1981. And it happens every four years, uh, typically one year after the Summer Olympic Games, but the pandemic pushed it from 2021 to 2022, so here we are. Uh, we are going to have 3,633 world-class athletes in our city next month to compete in fence swimming, tug of war, sumo wrestling, squash, I think those two may go together, softball, flag football, gymnastics, water skiing, a total of over 30 different sports. 108 nations will be represented in this city next month. And do you know who holds the record for the most medals in the World Games? Glad you asked. It's this guy on the screen. Now, probably not who you are expecting to see as a world-class athlete, but this guy, Steve Rajeff, has won 15 medals in casting, fishing rod casting, before the sport was discontinued in 2005. Eight gold medals. Rajeff has held the world record for distance casting with a single hand fly rod since 1973, holding the current record of 243 feet. A few years ago, Rajeff had the longest cast with a two-handed spinning tackle at 325 feet. Folks, he is throwing this thing over a football field. This is what I'm telling you. And one of the neatest stories that I read was that he actually challenged pro golfer Freddie Couples to see who could launch a golf ball the furthest. And so Freddie Couples got up and hit a drive, a massive drive, 333 yards long. And then Rajeff got up, attached the golf ball to his fishing rod, and launched it 337 yards, four yards further than Freddie Couples, beating him in the golf ball launch contest. What I'm telling you is that this guy's the real deal, all right? So why am I telling you this to start off the sermon? Well, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus showed up in the flesh, his coming was and has been the single most world-game-changing reality in the history of the world. Yet here's the deal. The kingdom that he came to establish is a kingdom like none other. It wasn't a kingdom that anybody was anticipating. If you were to put a picture up here on the screen of Jesus' coming and what it was going to do, if you, could, if you could some way encapsulate that in a picture, and let's take Rajaf off the screen for a minute. If you could some way encapsulate that in a picture, you would, you would not think that was what was going to happen. This is, this is a little bit of first century context here. It, it would not be what you, you would have thought. It would be uh, very unassuming that this is the way it would happen. Here's our vision at Homewood. That we are kingdom-devoted disciples, making disciples of nations and generations. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be kingdom devoted? As we were walking through our visioning process the past few years, this was a word that kept coming up as I was listening to uh, the scriptures, as I was listening to our leadership, as I was listening to you. This was a word that kept coming to the surface, this word kingdom, not in some kind of a superficial or 
cliche or catchy kind of way. It was coming up in meaningful terms and meaningful ways. What I've learned is, is that when you are new to a family or when you're new to a job or when you're new to a school or even when you're new to a church, there's certain phrases, there's certain terminology that is used that we're just not familiar with. Like we just don't know exactly the, the inside jokes. We don't know kind of some of the background of some of the phrases that are, are used. So when Lainey and I started dating, her family invited me over for dinner. And so we sat down for dinner and uh, somebody just made the comment that this tastes like potpourri. And I was, and everybody kind of started laughing and chuckling and I had no idea what they were talking about. I was sitting there completely unaware of what in the world they were even referring to. It wasn't until I got the context of why they were laughing. And why they were laughing was because Lanny's younger brother years ago thought that he would help with dinner one night. And so he saw this jar of spices and he decided to dump it into the whole casserole that was being made without his mom knowing. And then she began to stir it in and stir it in. And then when they finally came to the meal and they finally ate the meal, they said, hmm, this tastes funny. It's because he had poured a whole jar of potpourri into the casserole and they were eating it unaware. So now I know the context. Now when that is brought up, I can laugh a little because I understand. This is some of what we're trying to explain and talk about when we talk about the kingdom. If we don't have a context for the kingdom, when Jesus talks about the good news of the kingdom, then I would propose it will be hard for us to seek that which Jesus told us to seek first. So when you think of Jesus, you must think about his announcement of the kingdom. If we miss the kingdom, then we miss who Jesus proclaimed himself to be. So Matthew chapter four, hopefully you're there. You'll see this on the screen as well. After Jesus' baptism and following his 40 days in the wilderness, he begins to preach from the book of Isaiah. And then he says this, Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then just a few verses later, Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the, their synagogues, proclaiming what? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. So what, what does that mean? And so for the next few moments, and really as a launching pad for the next several weeks, as we go into this series, World Game Changer, I want to I just give us for a few moments kind of this, this maverick-style flyover of the biblical narrative as, as we look at, okay, what, what is the, the kingdom represented as? What does it mean as we walk through the text? So the first time we find the idea of kingdom is really on page two of the Bible. This idea of reigning, this idea of ruling. Genesis chapter 1, you can flip back there or you can look at it on the screen, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian nature of, of the Godhead, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, here's that rule, rule. 
so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Here's that word again, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Why is it important to go all the way back to the beginning? These image-bearing creatures ruling over, they are kings and queens of creation in this partnership with the Creator. It's not how we think of the word ruling. It's not ruling over like, like we tend to think about it. There's this partnership with the Creator in participating in what the Creator designed. Page three of the Bible, just one page later, we get to Genesis chapter three, and what do we see? We see humanity, we see humans uh, rebel against this design. They see their opportunity to rule over toward their own self-advantage. Instead of ruling on behalf of God, they want to rule on behalf of themselves. So what is birthed in Genesis chapter 3 is an alternate kingdom. It's the kingdom of this world. Jesus would tell Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. And so what's God's response in Genesis chapter 3? He forms a people. They're going to be my people and I will be their God. He forms a people. He rescues his people. This is in the Exodus story, the next book of our Bible. The first time God is referred to in kingly terms is right after he leads Moses and the people through the waters of the Red Sea. Right after they sing, it's beautiful singing this morning, right after they sing a song. Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam. It'd be on the screen, Exodus 15, 18. The last time, line of that song is that the Lord, what? The Lord reigns forever and ever. King, reigning, ruling, king, dumb, king, dominates, has dominion over. <clears throat> the people are invited to live under what? Under his reign. But like many of us, they don't submit to God's reign and they ultimately run the nation into the ground. Yet what we see is that Israel's poets and Israel's prophets kept alive this hope that one day that God would take the world back. One day he would become king once again and he would install his kingdom over humanity. And so the prophet Isaiah describes this anticipation. He describes this hope in Isaiah chapter 52. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, the great kingdom to the north, and most of God's people are sent away into exile. But there are a few that still remain in the city. There are a few that still remain in Jerusalem, and the people are left wondering, what in the world just happened? Has God abandoned us? Anybody ever felt that way? Has God forgot us? Has he left us? 
And then Isaiah has been saying this was of the people's own making. They had turned away from God. They had become corrupt. All seems lost. And yet the text says that there was this watchman who sees this messenger coming, running toward the city, shouting, good news. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And here's the good news. Despite Jerusalem's destruction, God still reigns as king. And one day he's going to return to the city, take up his throne and bring peace. Yet he's not going to do it through the powers of this world. He's going to do it through a suffering servant. This, this is the act of God. The kingdom of God is how God is taking back and redeeming the world. And so Matthew 4, 23 that we just read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. Did you notice the three things that are happening in this text? The three things that Jesus is inaugurating. He is working through these three things, teaching, number one. Number two is proclaiming. Number three is healing. So when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven here, he's, he's not talking about the sweet by and by. He's not talking about streets of gold and never-ending crumble cookies. He's talking about something that's happening here and now. This is how they would hear it. This is how they would receive this because the people in Jesus's day in chapter four, they don't, they don't hear that it's, it's this place that's far, far away. No, no, no. The people are in the Middle East who are brought up reading the words of the prophet Isaiah who often prophesied about the kingdom of God as we just read. And here's the deal to them. The kingdom wasn't necessarily this place or this location or this far, far away place. The kingdom was a happening. It was happening. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says, instead of heaven and God being always present with us as Jesus shows them to be, we invariably take them to be located far away and most likely at a much later time, not here and not now. But the phrase kingdom of God referred to the reign of God, referred to the rule of God, referred to the authority of God on display. And you will see these two phrases over and over again in our New Testaments. This phrase, kingdom of God, and this phrase, kingdom of heaven. And oftentimes it's, it's asked, you know, are those two different things? Uh, one, one response to that is, is that no, they are the same thing. One of the reasons that those, those words are, are used interchangeably is because Matthew's audience was primarily a Jewish audience, and they would not say the word God out loud out of reverence for God. They would not say it out loud. So it was substituted as kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. But when we hear kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, we're, we're referring to the same, the same thing. That these words right before Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, 23 and 24, catch this. Before Jesus delivers the sermon, he delivers people. Before he, he preaches the sermon, 
He's not just declaring that the kingdom of God was near. He was demonstrating it. That's one of the takeaways that I want us to to clasp onto today, that Jesus did not just declare the kingdom of God, that he demonstrated it. And so before he does anything, before he does this whole lot of telling, he's going to do this this sharing. And, And here the kingdom of God is making this practical difference in people's lives, freeing their body from diseases. It's, it's freeing them from pain. It's freeing them from demonic oppression. We see, and Paul would say it this way, 1 Corinthians 4.20, that for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. He's demonstrating it. He's not just declaring it. And then we get to this passage in Luke chapter 8. I encourage you to flip over there and see this for your own eyes. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine what that encounter may have been like? Do you think that she felt unworthy of Jesus' healing? Have you ever felt unworthy? Do you think that she felt embarrassed? Have you ever been embarrassed about the way that you have conducted yourself? Unable to live up to the gift that she had received, is this resonating with anybody? I want to show you a scene from the TV series, The Chosen. This clip is being shown uh, with express permission from The Chosen. The website will be available in our comments or you can download The Chosen app on your device to access their content. They told me I had to say that. Well, let's take a look at this scene between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. It's not you. There's quite a lot going on right now. Good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. I'm I'm so ashamed. You redeemed me and I just threw it all away. Well, that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day, is it? you everything but I just don't think I can do it do what live up to it repay you how could I leave how could I go back to the place I was and I didn't even I didn't even come back on my own they had to come get me 
I just can't live up to it. Well, that's true. <laughs> but you don't have to. I just want your heart. A father just wants your heart. Give us that, which you already have. And the rest will come in time. Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry. Look up. <laughs> I can't. You can. Look at me. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> it's over. that clip several times this week. I love the, the ending of Matthew standing outside the tent. Just thinking about maybe, you know, him recording that someday in his gospel. Uh, do we have a particular scripture that shows this scene unfold? No, we don't. I remember I asked you to imagine just what that encounter may have, have been like. About 100 years ago, there was a movement in a lot of mainline churches. It was a movement toward social change and justice. It became known as the social gospel or something like that. Hospitals, universities were largely birthed out of a Christian movement. And this word kingdom got placed in some of this language. So phrases like build the kingdom or advance the kingdom, they became popular phrases. And if we're not careful, we can take institutions, organizations, even churches, and we can equate them to the kingdom. Jesus never says that we are building the kingdom. He says we're entering it. He says we're experiencing it. We are seeking the kingdom. We are participating in it. And if you, if you want to be added to that number, we invite you to Jesus, to be buried in renewed with him just as Julia Price was last week. Whose kingdom is it? Who advances it? It's Jesus. And how does the kingdom advance? By forming a people who submit to it. So throughout this series, I want to pray for just that. I want to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. If you'll stand and join me together as we say the prayer of our Lord. So we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we all say, 
Amen.